If you turn with me to the passage in Scripture where today's preaching is based, it comes from Matthew chapter 28, and I'll be reading from verses 16 through 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And this is God's word. You know, if you've been to Metro during this season of Lent, and if you've been paying attention, uh, we see that Matthew, he doesn't just give us accounts of what actually happens in the gospel according to Matthew. He doesn't just give us news in his gospel. He always embeds either before the news with the account or after the news account some interpretation, some teaching about the account. And that's Jesus' own interpretation of that event. And so we, we, if you go back to our Lent series this past year, we start with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the agony that he experienced in Gethsemane, the arrest and betrayal of Jesus, his death on the cross. Every one of these episodes or narratives are woven together with Jesus' own interpretation. And the same goes for this resurrection, for the resurrection of Jesus. This way, Jesus doesn't leave it to us. He doesn't leave it to us to interpret the resurrection on our own, in our own way. And so Matthew chapter 28, Jesus is raised to life. That's news. That's the good news. But where is the interpretation? And we see that here at the end of chapter 28 in what is known as the Great Commission. The Great Commission is Jesus' own explanation of why he rose again. And so the church has been centered around the life-transforming power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That means a Christian builds his life around a culture of transformation for himself, for others, for a city, for the world. Because the resurrection gives us four things very quickly. One, it gives us courage. Two, it gives us intimacy. Three, community. And four, victory. Courage intimacy, community, victory. That's why Jesus died. That's why he rose again. First, the resurrection gives us courage. Because Jesus was risen from the dead, because he was raised, Jesus says, verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so the apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 says that when God raised Jesus from the dead, he seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority all power and dominion. You see, if you're at the right hand of the throne, you were like the prime minister. You had royal executive power, but you were also in a seat of favor. You were in a place of favor. That means that if you were at the right hand of God, if you were at the right hand of the king, whatever you asked for, whatever you pleaded for, whatever you interceded for, you got it. And so in the Apostles' Creed, which we just recited together, which is derived from a particular book uh, in the Gospels, Uh, The Apostles' Creed says, Jesus rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And so we see Jesus ruling, but he's also seated. Very important. Why? Because the high priest, the high priest once a year would enter into the most holy place in the temple. 
But as he was doing his work, he always stood. He would never sit down. He wouldn't dare sit down because that would mean that the work was finished and the work was never finished. The high priest was merely representative of one who would come to finish the work completely. But Jesus Christ on the cross says what? It's finished. The debt has been paid. And so he's not only a king, but he's also a high priest. And he's always pleading. He's always interceding. He's always advocating for you. And he's not advocating in a way where he's saying, Father, these people are weak. Just let them go. That's not what, he's, that's not what we mean when he say that he's interceding for you or he's pleading for you. He stands as your defense attorney, the greatest defense attorney you could have, advocating for you, bringing up the law and saying, you are just, and the debt has been paid. And so in your justice, you must set them free because the debt is paid. Because he's obedient and because he was lawful, that makes him a just king. Because he suffered for his people, that makes him a humble king. Because he died for his people, that makes him a sacrificial king. Because he rose again, that makes him a powerful king. Because he rules, that makes him a glorious king. And because, as Jonathan Edwards said, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he peered into the furnace of hell. And he was overwhelmed by the flames, just peering into it. And yet, he still volunteered himself. He still chose to go to the cross. That makes him a wise king and a gracious king and a loving king. It gives us courage. It gives us courage. How does it give us courage? In the book of Acts, we have, uh, we have Stephen. Uh, Stephen was stoned to death. He was an apostle. He was stoned to death. Now, during his trial and his execution, he was calm. The Bible says that it was like his face was like the, uh, the face of an angel. Why, where did he get such poise? Where did he get such courage? In Acts chapter 7, the text reads that Stephen looked to heaven and he saw the glory of God. He saw heaven open and the Son of Man seated. In other words, on the outside, evil appeared to win. Life seemed out of control. That's visible reality. But Stephen saw the Son of Man seated, and he knew that life is not out of control. That's real reality. The Son of God is seated, and he's ruling, and he's in control, and he's wise. And Stephen could trust that, and that made him incredibly bold. So that even while he was standing before his accusers, he was speaking out against oppression and injustice. He knew that he had the ultimate defense, the ultimate advocate. You see, Jesus as a teacher, Jesus as a religious leader, Jesus as just a moral example would never be able to give you that kind of courage when you're suffering in the face of death. You see, if we're just molecules colliding violently out of, by chance, if that's what we are, if that's what we are a culmination of, to become life, that means violence and chance are going to be a part of your life because it's at the core of who you are. That means that life is out of control. That means that you should be afraid. You should quake. Where do you find real calm? Where do you find real poise in the midst of danger? Because at, your, at best, Jesus Christ is just a teacher. Jesus Christ, as a moral example, will still make you afraid. But if you come to Jesus Christ as your substitute, if the resurrection is real, if it happened, then you know your advocate is not only the king, 
He's the high priest, and he rules and sits in a place of favor. And you can't have a greater advocate than that. Stephen, in the midst of oppression and injustice, in the midst of death, he saw Jesus at God's right hand, and that made him brave because Jesus was his ultimate advocate. The one who died for you is the one who loves you. And the one who loves you is the one who advocates for you. And the one who advocates for you is the just king who rules above all. To the degree that you trust that, there's your poise. There's your common suffering. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. If Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead, why would you believe anything that he would say? Why would you obey anything that he would say? But if he was raised from the dead, you have to obey everything he said. You have to listen to everything he said, and it will give you courage and boldness. Secondly, it gives you intimacy. Jesus says in verse 19, Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and I will be with you. Here, Jesus defines making disciples in two parts. First, verse 19, baptizing them, he says. See, when you're a baby, you're newly born, you have new life. The reality is, mothers know, right? The reality is that baby has been alive for about 10 months. So the day they're born, so to speak, the birthday is really the day that they come out and proclaim that I'm alive in public. That's what's going on. That's what we celebrate. That's baptism. Baptism is a celebration of new life in Jesus. God's been working in this person's life all their lives. But that's the day they come out in public and say, I am alive. Jesus Christ has conquered the grave. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So now you have power in him to help people along the process of conversion. But the second thing Jesus says, verse 20, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Think about this. When you're a baby and you're newly born, from the moment that you're born, you can't feed yourself, you can't digest on your own, you can't clean yourself. So what do you need? You need somebody to feed you. You need somebody to burp you. You need someone to clean you. You don't even know what it means to play. You need somebody to teach you how to laugh, teach you how to smile, teach you how to make sounds. You need someone to talk to. You need someone to teach you. What do they teach over the course of years? Your parents teach you, this is safe, this is dangerous. Listen to my voice. This honors me. This is good for you. You're teaching to obey because what? Obedience, the very nature of the essence of meekness, is a sign of growth. Immaturity is a person who runs wild on their own. That's how they get hurt. That's what you teach your children. But meekness is a sign of maturity. Meekness, obedience, is a sign of growth. Later, you teach your children much more complex things. You teach them how to solve problems, how to process, how to make wise decisions. You teach them to love other people, what it means to love and receive love, how to deal with your anger, how to deal with your sadnesses and sorrows. It takes lots of work, a tremendous amount of investment in every step. Jesus says... I want you to baptize them. I want you to teach them to obey. Teach them to obey everything that Christ has commanded. Shape others in a culture of growth in the gospel. And he says, when you do this, I, will, I am present with you. I am with you. I will be with you. I am present with you. 
This is the life of the church. The ministry of the gospel is that we're all called. If you have placed your life in Jesus Christ, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and your Redeemer and your Savior, what that means is that we're all called to make disciples. But as you do it, there's a tremendous experience of an intimacy with God that is very renewing and unique. And so one of the ways that we experience the active presence of Jesus is to make disciples. You sit with people in the gospel, in the word. You saturate them in the gospel, in the word. You serve with them in the gospel, in the word. You speak into them in the gospel, in the word. When Paul the apostle confronts Peter the apostle, two apostles, one who had known Jesus personally and actively, he confronts Peter when he was out of line and he says, you are, he doesn't say, Peter, you're a racist, even though Peter was acting in, uh, in favor of Jews, right, and against Gentiles in a way. He says, Peter, you are not living in line with the gospel. He can speak into with boldness and courage the gospel. That means that you're teaching people to love Jesus above all things, teaching them to love others. Everything that I've commanded, what were the two greatest commands? To love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and to love others to love your neighbor as yourself. You see that? And so we're teaching people to love others, teaching the church to love one another. That means you teach them to pray for them, one another, to share with one another, to not gossip, to forgive one another, to develop life-giving relationships around you that are fundamentally tied to the life of the church. And when you do that, you're going to discover a genuine intimacy that's powered through the life of the church and its ministry of making disciples. That's mission. That's what it is. In other words, the intimacy of God that we experience is integrally tied together with the intimacy of the body through life-changing discipleship. That's the mission of Christ. That's what we call union. So when you sit with them, when you saturate them, when you serve with them, when you speak Jesus into them, Jesus says, I am present with you. At the end of the book of Luke, the gospel according to Luke, after the resurrection, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus' disciples encounter Jesus. And so Jesus stays with them, and he teaches them, and he disciples them. And then he disappears. He goes. And they're left, and what they say is, were not our hearts burning within us when he opened the scriptures to us? So if you experience any warmth in the gospel, any love in the church, any grace demonstrated to you that comes with reading and listening and reflecting and praying and sharing in the Word of God. It's because Jesus is present. That's what that means. There's a tremendous intimacy that you experience. But it's not just personal. That's the third point. You experience community. The gospel gives us a community. Jesus says, Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That word... In the NIV, surely, in the King James Bible, is low. We don't use words like that anymore. In the ESV, they translate that to mean, behold. Behold, I am with you. That means, look here. I'm calling you to pay special attention to this. It's a very strong word. Now, what does he say? He says, behold, I am with you always. 
people in the Western world, that's us, when we hear that, we think, we're saying, we think what Jesus is saying is, ah, Jesus is saying, I'm going to be with you personally to the end. That's so sweet. And it's true, but it's not the emphasis. Because when the text reads, behold, I'm with you, he's talking to you, plural. He's talking to you all, the church. The you is plural. Jesus is saying, pay close attention to this. I am with you all, always, to the very end of the age. Because I am risen, because I am living, because I am a person. The Christian life is personal. The Christian life is relational. So the best way to get to know me is in the context of your relationships. Deep, close community. That's very important. Why? Because in our day and age, greater than 80% of Americans today believe that you can be a Christian without ever going to church. And that is a, it is a deep lie. It is a false truth. That you can, go to, you can be a Christian without going to church because the heart of the Great Commission is what? Jesus is present with us corporately. He's present with us corporately. Lo and behold, I am with you all. It's in the context of deep community that you discover no one experiences self-discovery on their own. Not a single person here ever discovers more about themselves in a vacuum. It's in the context of deep community that you discover different dimensions about yourself and others. Think about it. The very most intimate relationship you have on earth is what? That with your spouse, right? When you're with your spouse, you learn things about yourself that were shielded to you, shielded from you in some ways. Your friends were too afraid to tell you, but your spouse isn't because there's a covenantal bond there. And they're not afraid to tell you who you really are. You discover things about yourself, the reality of who you are in dim many dimensions, your gifts, your sins, your flaws. You discover different dimensions of other people in the same way. And that's how you're made. And you are made in the image of God. Then how much more to experience the infinite God who by nature is a community, the Trinity, God the Father and Son and Holy Spirit intimately tied together. That means that you need a corporate relationship with God every bit as much as a personal relationship with God. That's the ministry of discipleship, union. The resurrection gives us boldness. The resurrection gives us intimacy with God. The resurrection gives us a deep context for which we can discover dimensions of one another, and experience an infinite God in that context. Lastly, the resurrection promises and gives us victory. Jesus says, I'm with you to the very end of the age. What he means by that, he's saying, when you look at the end of the world, I'm there with you. I'm at the end of the world with you. For Christians, for Christians, the end of your personal narrative the end of this story is the beginning, just the beginning of new life. In a way that it should put the entire story of your life in perspective. When you're watching a horror movie, I, I love horror movies, right? Um, I like watching horror movies. When I, if you ever go with me to a horror movie, I don't like hearing horror movies for some reason. So I have to close my ears during the scary scenes. But I like watching them. My brother is different. My brother, uh, he 
doesn't like seeing the horror, right? He, or here, though, he, I don't know, he's under, pretty much under his jacket the entire movie. That's how he is. I don't know. But he likes to go. I think he just likes the experience of being there. I like watching horror movies. When you're watching a horror movie, it's hard. A good horror movie is tough. You're sweating. Sometimes you just want it to all stop, right? You want to pause, right? You need to step out and take a break. Why? Because there's death everywhere. There's violence everywhere. There's suffering everywhere. You're suffering. But if you know the end already, it puts the entire story in perspective. Everyone around you is anxious. Everyone around you is in despair. Everyone around you is uncertain. But you, you can sit and endure it all. You can endure it all. Ernest Becker, he's a Pulitzer Prize winning author, his seminal piece of writing, his book, is called The Denial of Death. It was actually out of print for about an entire generation and recently came back in print because people are now starting to wake up to it again, what he wrote. He's a secular man, and yet what he wrote is so profound. And here's what he says. He says, the irony of man's condition is that his deepest need is to be free of anxiety and death. But it's life which awakens the anxiety and death. And so man must shrink from being fully alive. In other words, he says a lot there. What he's saying there is this. Why do we drink ourselves to oblivion? Why are we addicts? Why are we constantly trying to escape our present reality? I mean, the very nature of apocalyptic sex, which is a, a phenomenon today in our society today, is because we're just here now. There's no such thing as the end. There's no such thing as life after the end. There's no such thing as eternity. There's no such thing as a deeper reality, more so than our present visible reality. And so all that matters is how you feel today. Do whatever that makes you happy. So you can be tremendously joyful on one day and then tremendously grumpy and and complaining and grumbling on the next. And, And so basically Ernest Vector says that we're doing this because... There is no such thing as the end. And we're coming to grips and anxious about the fact that one day this life is so short and it's going to come to an end. There's a death. And so we're constantly in denial. We're running from that. And so we're going to do whatever makes us feel happy. And so there's no rules. There are no morals. And what's the result? We are more anxious today than ever before. This is, they say, scholars and commentators say that today we live in, a, in an age of the greatest anxiety and depression that society has ever known, more than ever before. But if you know the end of the story, you would be resilient. You would be hopeful. Because the end is a beautiful ending. Jesus Christ overcame the grave. Jesus Christ overcame sin. Jesus Christ overcame death and violence and suffering and oppression and injustice. And he says, one day all the suffering will come to an end because I am alive and because I rule and because I've returned. I am the centerpiece of history. I am at the end of the world's happy ending. It's centered around me. It ends with me. Remember Lord of the Rings? At the end of Lord of the Rings, the entire trilogy, remember Sam? Sam wakes up. Gandalf is there. Gandalf died earlier. Sam wakes up. Gandalf is there. He says, wait, I thought you were dead. 
I thought I was dead. Wait a second. Has everything sad come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? One day, we will experience the ultimate reversal. Is your heart broken today? Is your body broken today? Are your relationships broken today? Is life broken today? Because Jesus' heart was broken on the cross. Jesus' body was broken on the cross. Jesus' ultimate relationship, one that subsumes all other relationships, was broken. And he bears the scars like a receipt that guarantees what? The unraveling of the ultimate reversal in our lives. One day, everything broken will become renewed. And it begins with our hearts. It begins with your heart. Evil will be swallowed up. All of our sorrows, all of our losses will be subsumed by the joy that comes at the end. And joy will will undo all the brokenness in our lives. Isn't that amazing? That's the promise. In fact, it's through the brokenness that the joy will come. Just like on the cross, God used the greatest brokenness in the history of the world, Jesus Christ on the cross, broken and dead. And yet through that brokenness and sadness came ultimate salvation, ultimate joy, in a way that all that will remain one day is the glory and the holiness and the presence of God mixed with your joy. If you trust that, you can go to Jesus. If you trust that, you can pray your bitterness. You can pray your pain. You can pray your losses. You can pray your hurt. If you believe in the resurrection, it will start to heal your heart because it's true. The resurrection is true. It's a healing that comes through your suffering that's going to put all of your suffering in perspective. It's a healing that comes through your brokenness that's in a way that's going to make all your brokenness, put it in perspective. If you feel humiliated, look at the humiliated Christ. When you see the end of the story, the end of that narrative, it's going to put all that humiliation in perspective and your death subsumed in the victory of Christ. How do you know that? How do you know it will happen? How do you know that Jesus Christ will be with us to the end? It's because Jesus Christ went to the end for you. So in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays, Now my heart has been troubled, overwhelmed to the point of death. He was reflecting on the cross that would come, literally the weight of the world on him. And you see him falling apart at Gethsemane. He's quaking. And on the cross, the wrath of God is being poured out on him in full. And the Son of God has become disowned by God. Why? So that we would become owned by God. The Son of God abandoned and rejected by God so that we would become accepted by God. The right hand, the one who's at the right hand, the one who executes royal authority, he was executed. Why? So that we would have life. The judge of all, ruler over all, was judged and tried and murdered. Why? So that we could receive mercy. Jesus Christ on the cross experienced the ultimate darkness of being separated from God. Are you experiencing darkness? Jesus Christ experienced ultimate darkness. Are you experiencing quaking and fear and, and, uh, in your life? Jesus Christ received the ultimate quaking. He experienced the ultimate quaking, literally an earthquake around him and in his heart. And yet God remained silent. Jesus Christ had no advocate, even though he was crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
What that meant is I have no advocate. I have lost intimacy with God. I've lost my community of the Trinity and the Father. My own friends have abandoned me. No community. And I'm utterly lost. The infinite darkness I was plunged into. Why? So that Jesus Christ could be your high priest, your lover, your shepherd. Do you know, and still, he was looking to the Father, calling him God, my God, my God. He still trusted God. He was reciting Psalm 22. That means he was thinking and reciting Scripture in his heart, even as he was being separated from God, trusting in real reality beyond all that was visible. You know, the psalm, that Psalm 22, was a psalm of lament, brokenness, leading to a a psalm of praise in God, trusting in God. Never fear, friends, never fear. Jesus Christ is with us always to the very end of the age. That means that you can go to Jesus because he's been through it all the way to the end, and he has seen you through every part of your story in your life. You can have courage. This year, Metro as a church will be taking some big steps in faith, big steps in courage to make disciples because we believe in the resurrection. Do you believe in the resurrection? Is it your visible reality beneath the reality that you see? Do you believe? Let's pray.